A reading from the book of Mark. That day, when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demon begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. The word of the Lord. Okay, first of all, I'd like to say that was the longest, most scariest introduction to a mighty fortress as our God that I've ever heard. I thought we were going to have to have a conversation with Martin Luther in heaven one day about his hymn being dead. Scared, scared me there. Do you all know, by the way, what October 31st is? Reformation Day, right. And this October 31st is a special one because it is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther nailing the 95 Theses on the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg. It's a big deal. I mean, Luther 
basically a doctrinal flourish nails it to the church bulletin board rescues the gospel and it's the reason why you and i are here today it's a big deal so yeah i hope i throw this challenge out every year only one person scott shepherd has ever taken me up on it but dress up like martin luther this halloween including shaving the uh, humble circle in your head and we will post your picture on facebook i dare you it's, it's a big deal last week uh, i'm not quite sure how to say this so i'm just going to tell you last week i wore a tie it wasn't a wedding it wasn't a funeral it was a power encounter as a member of the board of the Jefferson Center for Mental Health, I traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with our Colorado senators and congressmen to ask them to support mental health legislation. I got three yeses who said, of course, and that's what government does. And I've got one no that says we're sympathetic and it's a good cause. But if the government supported every cause, it would be broke and we would have no government. Then, by the way, this was the day after the Las Vegas shooting. The senators and congressmen had questions for us, mental health professionals and volunteers. First question, how can we fix this? Second question, what in the world is going on? When we left Jesus last week, he was finishing up a long, exhausting day of teaching. He was standing out in a boat because the crowds were so massive that he'd been pressed to death. So they gave him space, and the only way was to get out in the water on a boat, speaking to a large crowd. And the last question that he asked near the end of the day, was, what is the kingdom of God like? And he answers his own question with a parable when he said, it's like a mustard seed, the smallest seed to the visible eye, but yet it grows and expands, grows until it becomes one of the largest bushes that we know, so large that even birds can come and nest and raise their young. The kingdom of God is a power that is driving and determining all of history. So Jesus is now going to take his disciples on a field trip. Do you remember a field trip, right? First-hand experience. That's their purpose. And Jesus wants to give his disciples first-hand experience of this power that is driving history. And so he's going to take them on this field trip where they are about to see that Jesus is stronger than the natural world. The calming of the sea. And Jesus is stronger than the spiritual world. The calming of the storm inside a man. Are you ready for a field trip? I almost feel like I should tell you to buckle in this morning. It's going to be intense. Let's set some groundwork for the first story. We're out in the boat in the Sea of Galilee. 
Now, the first thing I would point out, and we've pointed this out several times in Mark's gospel, is the attention to detail, the eyewitness testimony. And this is, by the way, what sets the gospels apart from every other concurrent genre of literature from that day, myths and fables, was the attention to detail, the eyewitness accounts. For instance, we know that it's evening. We know that there are other boats out on the lake that are going to make this uh, trip across the lake. We also know that Jesus decides and the disciples decide that he would stay in the same boat from which he's teaching and go in that boat across the lake. We also know that Jesus is exhausted. He falls asleep at the back of the boat, the stern. So we, uh, by the way, it says a cushion in the text is probably a sandbag that was used for ballast. We know all these details because we believe that Mark's gospel is the eyewitness account of the apostle Peter. So, we're in the boat. We have firsthand evidence. And now let's talk about the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake, one of the largest lakes in the Middle East. It's fresh water. It sits uniquely 700 feet below sea level. And on most, it's 13 miles long, 8 miles wide. On most of its length, it's surrounded by large mountains. Now, in Colorado, we would call that a mound, but it's a mountain, and the largest mountain is 9,200 feet, Mount Hermon, and what this means is that this lake is like a wind tunnel with warm currents and cool currents and cool currents and warm currents always switching around because of the mountains, but it's over water. Long story short, the Sea of Galilee is known for its storms. So they're out in the water in a boat, and the text says that Jesus is asleep. And one thing I want to point out, and this is a huge irony, this is the only time in the Gospels where we see Jesus asleep. Hold on to that. So Jesus is asleep. The boat, by the way, they have found in 1986 an excavation five miles south of Capernaum, probably five miles south of where Jesus is getting in this boat, they've uh, lifted up at the hull of a fishing boat, carbon dated to 40 AD. So we have a sense of what the boat would look like. This boat was 27 feet long, eight feet wide, and five, I'm five foot six, so five feet tall. Pretty good sized boat. Capacity, probably 15 people. Holes on, two holes on either side for four rowers. And they've also found that the cedar planks, and the cedar planks were put in the fore and the aft of the boat, and that's where people would sit, or in Jesus' case, lie down and rest. And then a storm on the Sea of Galilee comes up. But here's the thing about this storm. You remember, right, that at least four of the disciples were fishermen who grew up fishing this lake. So if they are worried and scared and wondering if they're going to drown, this must be the perfect storm. This is massive. This is like life-threatening, and they know it. And so they turn to Jesus, and they say, not help, not wake up, not storm. They say, don't you care that we're going to drown? Evidently, they were perturbed that Jesus was asleep. Don't you care that we're going to drown? Jesus gets up. Three words. Quiet, be still. Now, we've seen that word quiet before. It was used in chapter 1 when Jesus confronted a demon, and he told the demon, quiet. It actually means be muzzled. It's as if Jesus is talking to creation, and creation has heard this voice before, and it obeys. 
One commentator, N.T. Wright, said, it's like Jesus is speaking to an unruly child. And the astonishing thing? The unruly child obeys. In the ancient world, this was common among all cultures, the sea was thought to be uncontrollable. And anyone who could control the sea must be God. And I think what Peter, Mark, are trying to convey to us, what Jesus is trying to display, is that Jesus is not only a man with power, he is power itself. And anyone else who has power has it on loan from him. Quiet. Be still. And the text says the sea is calm. The text indicates it's like glassy calm. Now, nowhere yet, we, we see the, the disciples, you know, concerned and they're yelling at Jesus, but nowhere in the text does it say Jesus is terrified until after the sea, that the disciples are terrified until after the sea is calm. Because they realize what just happened and they're beginning to realize who this is. And in fact, they ask, who is this that we're in the boat with? And they're terrified. What do we do with this story? Jesus calms the sea. Well, I think this story impacts the way we think and the way we live. The way we think. What in the world is going on? There are options for the answers to that question. There are many in our culture, many people we know and are friends with, and, and we we love them, but many of them are thinking, well, all this world is is a monumental storm. We are here by chance, random accidents. There was a storm, a bank, whatever it was somewhere, but we were made by forces that never have had us in mind. And so when we're dead, we're, we're done. We're dust. And, and when the sun's turned off, no one will ever remember our name or that we lived or anything that we've done. So ultimately, it doesn't really matter whether we've been a cruel person or a loving person. In the end, it doesn't matter. That's one option. Another option is that this monumental storm we call life and earth was made by a monumental person. During the three years that Jesus was with us, the presence of miracles is spectacular, probably unlike any other time in recorded history. Certainly in terms of biblical history, there are 36 recorded miracles of Jesus, but then there are those verses, for instance, in Mark 1, 33 and 34, it talks about entire villages coming out to Jesus and him healing them. In Mark chapter 6, it talks about Jesus walking through crowds, and if people just grabbed the robe that he was wearing, they were healed. Scholars estimate that Jesus healed upwards of 10,000 people while he was here for three years. Can you imagine? We look at that, and we, we, have, to, we have to wrestle with that. And what does that mean? How do we think about that? And what is this world? Because Jesus' purpose in coming was to say that when the physical, the actual presence of God invades this planet, the chains of sin and death are broken. We often like to think of a miracle as suspending the natural laws. That's not totally accurate. It's death and decay that suspend God's laws. 
You see, miracles are normal behavior from God's point of view and normal existence from God's point of view. And what miracles show us is just an early glimpse of the restoration that is now coming here already, but not yet in its fullness, but already coming in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It impacts the way we view life. Because we understand kind of what Jesus has come to do, and he's beginning now to put things back together. It's why Christians often walk through these tragedies and these storms of life with such prayer and poise. It's because we believe there's a bigger picture and that Jesus is already at work, displayed by his miracles, of putting things back together. So it impacts the way we think and view life. It also impacts how we live. I'd like to revisit the question that I think drives the text. And that's when the disciples cry out to Jesus, don't you care that we're drowning? Don't you care? You see, I think the disciples were operating on a premise that we often find ourselves operating. Here it is. It's an equation that we think uh, explains how life works. We think me plus storms equals God doesn't care. We think that if God loves us, there'll be no storms. Now, I have no pleasure in saying that, but that is the wrong premise. And you won't find that anywhere in the Bible. That's not how life works. The reality is this. God loves you, made you, has you more than you will ever know. And he loves you. He loves you. Even when storms come, he loves you. You see, we like to think of Jesus calming the storm and we say, all powerful, yes! But then the storms come and we know he's all powerful. We're not as comfortable saying, and all wise, and loving. But we have to have both. He loves us, and the storms come, and he loves us, and he's all wise. I, one of the books that I've never been able to get away from in my Christian walk, and I read it years ago, I, I was in high school. Elizabeth Elliot. Uh, under the shadow, or no, um, Through Gates of Splendor, her memoirs. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot in the 1950s met at Wheaton College. They got married in Ecuador. Uh, they called to reach an unreached people group called the Alca Indians in the jungles of Ecuador. And over a period of three years, they made inroads, slow inroads to connection. And one day on a beach near a river in the jungle of Ecuador, Jim Elliot Peter Fleming, Nate Saint, two others from his mission team, they were hacked to death. 1959, made papers around the world. What, what do you do with that? I mean, here, here's a couple, a family that had a little girl, completely sold out to Jesus and giving their lives for the cause. And God takes Jim Elliott out at 29 years of age, take, allows him to be taken out. 
Elizabeth Elliot writes in Through Gates of Splendor, God is God. Since he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere else but in his will. And that will is necessarily, infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he is up to. You're reading to your kids? Chronicles of Narnia. Gotta read it to your kids. Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver. Safe! Safe! Of course he isn't safe. Who said anything about safe? But Aslan, the Jesus figure, he's good. He's the king. How do we know God is good? Well, I did already mention the irony that this is the only place in the Gospels that Jesus is said to be asleep. We see him asleep. Here's the bigger irony. When the disciples ask Jesus, don't you care that we're drowning? Now let's just pause for a moment and understand exactly what's happened, happening there. Here is Jesus who has left the riches and the splendor and the glory and the home and the love of his Father in the Spirit. He's left all of that, humbled himself, come down to be a man, not at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. And the disciples are asking him, don't you care? Now that is irony. Whenever we're walking through a storm, and we will, and we do, I think it's perfectly appropriate to ask the question, God, don't you care? I mean, after all, half the Psalms are asking God, do you care? And I think there's real healing in asking the question and beginning to wrestle it down. And we won't get answers for most of it, but we get better at asking the questions and holding the questions and living with the questions. But one of the things that has to come into our mind when we're crying out, do you care? Is God's answer. And do you know what God's answer is to the question, do you care? In a word? Cross. It's the cross. When we ask God, do you care? The answer in a word is the cross. It impacts how we think and view the world. It impacts how we live, especially in the storms, when the one who commands the sea to calm is the one who voluntarily offers his life for us to give us God. And then there's a second story. There's work to do on the other side of a lake, and if Jesus calms a storm on the Sea of Galilee, now he's going to calm a storm in a man on the other side of the sea. They make the journey. Let me just say, as we set the table for this next story, and I remind you to strap in, this one gets even more intense. They go to, uh, it's called the region of the uh, Gerasenes, 
It's in a place called Decapolis, the Ten Cities. It's on the other side of the Jordan River. It's an area of Gentile nations, other nations. And it's primarily known for pig farms where they grew pigs to supply the Roman army's rations. So this was uh, an interesting place for the Jews in the boat to be going on a field trip among pig farms that supplied Roman armies. But Jesus came for all. And so Jesus gets off the boat and a man comes running up. The text immediately tells us this man has an impure spirit. In fact, we'll learn that he's filled with thousands of demons and he falls down. It's actually the word for worship. He falls down, proscuno, in front of Jesus. And uh, Mark's language is raw in describing these men in about these seven verses. He says, for instance, this man was bound. He uh, was chained and with irons, and he couldn't be subdued. People tried to forcefully you know, uh, restrain him, and that he lived in a cemetery, which to the Jews made him permanently unclean. And that uh, he would cut himself with stones. Let me just interject a couple of things here. First of all, this is the classic checklist of what it means for a person to be possessed by demons. And let's tick them off. A lack of personal dignity. He's probably naked. At the end, it makes a point to say that he was fully clothed. So he's, you know, in a state of undress and no shame. He, in lack of personal dignity. Second, socially isolated. Third, superhuman strength. Fourth, self-cutting and mutilation. And fifth, his speech is under the control of another. All those are classic symptoms of a person who has been possessed by demons. Let me, let me say a couple of things. One, we believe, and there's no evidence in Scripture, that a Christian in whom the Spirit of God lives can ever be possessed by a demon or demons because the Spirit lives in them and protects them and indwells them. So a Christian cannot be demon-possessed. We believe a Christian can be oppressed and attacked and accused. And the book of Job is a great way to study kind of the activity of the devil. And we're reminded that Luther said, the devil is God's devil. The devil can only do what God allows. He is not an equal player, and he does not have free reign. And even, you know, we could have coffee and talk about our theology here. It, it'd be fun. But I believe that even the devil's schemes are part of the larger plan of God for wherever this is going to land at the end with Jesus as victor. The devil is God's devil. So, Christians, be at ease. And even with, a, with a, a person who doesn't know Jesus, I believe the devil can only operate with space that he's allowed and given by people. But here are the classic symptoms. And again, I'm not saying that each one of those symptoms in and of themselves is demonic. And by the way, at Waterstone's approach to this, if we hear things about people, people often come to us and say, well, do I have a demon, whatever it is. We always approach that holistically. So there is a spiritual path, anointing, scripture, prayer, there is a psychological path, and you, is the mind okay, and, and, and the brain chemistry, and there's a medical path. So it's always to be approached holistically, trying to find out exactly what's going on. So, <laughs> this man comes, throws himself, 
And then there's this name game that goes on, right? In the ancient world, names meant power and control. So the devil, the, the demon is forced to give up his name, Legion. Legion is a military word in the Roman army for two to 6,000 men. So this man's personality has been absolutely shattered by demons. But before Legion spoke, Jesus, uh, by the demon's name, had, had to acknowledge Jesus' name. And he calls Jesus the Son of the Most High God. Not in Hebrew, but it's a Hebraic expression. This is the highest acclamation of deity that a person could acclaim in the Jewish tradition. Son of the Most High God. Remember in Mark, we keep emphasizing this, that the most consistent evangelists in Mark are whom? The demons. Can you imagine being in the crowd and demons crying out, yeah, he's the son of God. You people, he's the son of God. <laughs> so, Legion has to speak Jesus' name, has to speak Jesus' name first, and then Jesus calls Legion's name, finds out that he's Legion. And so Jesus is determined to heal this man. The demons respectfully, even using God's name, ask if they can be put into a herd of pigs. Now, this is really interesting. Demons are territorial, and so they don't want to leave the space they inhabit. They want to stay in that region. And so they ask if they can go into the pigs, thinking that if they go to the pigs, at least they'll be able to stay. Little did they know that pigs are also under the bidding of God, and they run down the hill and into the water, and you have floating bacon going on right before your very eyes. You see, in, in Matthew's account of this, the demons ask a second question, and they ask Jesus, is this the time you're going to throw us into the abyss? And they're referencing the time at the end when every demon and the devil himself will be thrown into the lake of fire, into the abyss. And the demons are wondering, are you going to do it now? Well, for them, the answer was, well, go into the pigs, and yes! <laughs> Boom! This is a WWF smackdown for us to see. This is you playing Penn State and being creamed 62 to nothing. <laughs> Woo! It's over. And the demons are sent into the abyss because I believe, we could discuss this, but my opinion is the pigs did God's bidding and ran into the water because God said it's time for these demons to go now there's a bit of a moral issue there I agree first of all 2,000 pigs was a fortune and these poor farmers in this Gentile region wow they lost a lot of money and then you know our cultures differ I'm sure with how we look at animals for most of us the end of pigs is in a frying pan but you know floating bacon is a little cruel what do we do with that well the only answer i would give you there is this it must be that the life of a person made in the image of god which the devil is always trying to steal by the way but the life of a person made in the image of god must be more valuable than any amount of money or any animal Now, what do we do with this story? Well, I think it affects the way we think and the way we live. What in the world is going on? 
When Jesus was with us, the activity of demons seemed to be like no other time in history. It's almost as if the curtains of reality are pulled back and Jesus comes and he's displayed as the Son of God, but that triggers something in the devil and he is as active as he's ever been trying to assault Jesus, assault his followers, and stop this from happening. Do you believe in the devil? The devil and his demons, demons are fallen angels that followed him when he thought he was better and bigger than God was kicked out of heaven and they've invaded this earth and their whole intent is to oppose God, extinguish faith, and steal the image of God from people. And so if they can get people acting as being dead while they're living, that is his goal. He's alive and well. I would like to say two things quickly. Satan is active and he's doomed. Peter writes in a letter later, and in, you know, Peter, this is uh, his eyewitness testimony, he saw this happen. He writes later to the church that the devil is like a lion, roaring. The roar of a lion can be heard six miles away. Roaming to and fro, praying, seeking whom he may devour. The devil is active. He is at work in this world to steal the image of God from every person that he can. Have you seen him at work? I just want to tell you two quick stories where I've seen the devil. I've seen him at work in Mali and Morrison. In Mali, several years ago, I lived there for six, six weeks with one of our missionaries. And uh, for part of that time, our job uh, was to go out with Doug Wilson, and we showed the Jesus film in the most remote places of Africa that, that you know, a person could ever travel. The Timbuktu is in Mali, by the way. This is the end of the world. And uh, by the way, each one of those villages had a generator and television, and my favorite memory is watching Italian soap operas in the bush in Africa. <laughs> Woo! Now, we went out, and the whole thing, we brought generators, and we were to, to show the Jesus film. Showed it, always responses. People were so captured by this Jesus. We'd be driving home, and the first couple times we did it was just Doug and I. And all of a sudden on the windshield, There'd be these two red eyes. Look at I'm like, Doug, do you see this? Said, yeah, that's the devil. Doesn't want us showing these films. This film. I, I was freaked out. Doug, who'd been doing this for, you know, eight, about eight years at this point, was like, yeah, it's the devil. In fact, he said... <laughs> Whenever the family and I go out, he had three boys. They were about 12, 10, and 8. He said, when they go out with me, they'll say, devil, get out of here. And then you see, whoosh. He's just trying to intimidate us, trying to harass us, trying to stop the Jesus film. But the Jesus film was showed thousands of times by a Waterstone missionary in the end of the world. We are far too timid with the name and authority of Jesus and far too timid with his word. And Morrison. So I was here one night, this was about six years ago, and uh, before we had the Saturday night service, but it was one of those weeks I was really behind and I was trying to get the sermon ready for you folks on Sunday morning. It was about 11 o'clock at night. I needed to come in the office because I needed some things out of some books. And I hear a noise. Now, if you're ever, like, a youth, if you grew up in the youth group here or youth, with the youth, there are weird noises in this building at night. Be warned. But this was clear. Boom, 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 boom. And I, look, I, I walk out, I look in the, 
in the concourse out here, and I see four freaked out and scared teenagers pounding on the outside of the door. Now, I'm not quite sure what to do. I kind of cracked the door open, and I said, what, what are you doing? What's, what's going on? He said, let us in, let us in. There's demons in our car. Now, <laughs> I, I must have missed this class in seminary, but like, what do you do? So we come in. What happened? Well, we were at a seance in Morrison. Something got called up. And it's in our car. It was shouting at them. It knew their names. They were freaked out. What do you do? Come on in. Let's sit down. I don't know exactly what to do, but we're going to start. And this is, by the way, this is always my default mode when I don't know what to do. And I'm telling you, it works. Keep it in your pocket. Pray the Psalms. I opened to Psalm 46. A mighty fortress is our God. Started reading one psalm. I must have read eight if I didn't read ten psalms. Kids were calming down. I said, oh, okay, you know, here's my chance. I started to share Christ with them, shared the gospel with them. Here's the irony. A demon service in Morrison to get these kids to a church at 11 o'clock at night to hear the gospel. We are far too timid with the name of Jesus and far too timid with the power of his word. Now, we calmed them down. I shared the gospel. They weren't in the mood really to hear the gospel. <laughs> I didn't care. I finished. We walked out. Now again, what do you do when you open that door? Oh, I forgot to say. So what we did first was we walked around the car and I had them lay hands on the car and we prayed over the car. But what do you do when you open that door? Do you make a fist? <laughs> there was nothing there. Kids got in the car, drove away, and I've never seen or heard from them again. I have always wondered what that night meant in their lives. The devil is active from Molly to Morrison. But we must never forget who is strong. The devil is doomed. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 says that when Jesus went to the cross, he disarmed the powers of the evil one. The devil is doomed. One of my favorite stories is from Carolyn Ahrens who grew up in the church. And she talks about as a little girl hearing missionaries that would come into her church from the steamy jungles of South America. And this one story she's never forgotten, a young missionary couple had just gotten into the jungle, into the field, and uh, weeks in, uh, sure enough, as you would expect, there was a big snake longer than two men uh, in their kitchen out into their living room, as round as their legs. Yeah, and they were freaked out. They ran out of the house screaming. The villagers came in, what's, what's wrong, what's wrong? There's a snake in, <laughs> yeah. it's a snake in our house. Oh, villager, okay, runs away, comes back, long machete, Walks in the house, thump, chops the head off. Comes back out, tells the missionaries, now you're going to have to wait here. You're going to have to wait probably for hours. Now, he didn't describe it in the scientific language we would, but a snake's nervous system and blood flow takes hours to die. 
but the villager did say, you're going to have to stay out here. It's not safe to go in. And by the way, the snake is going to thrash your house. All your furniture, everything you have in there is going to be wrecked. And this snake, <laughs> it thrashed everywhere. They were sick in their stomachs. This went on for hours. And then finally it stopped. They pulled the snake out. That is a picture of reality. That is our world. We live in a thrashing time, but I'm telling you, the devil and his demons are goners. They have already lost their head. Crushed. They inflict damage now in Las Vegas, in Littleton, Paris, they inflict damage, but it is a headless snake. It affects the way we think and view the world. It affects the way we live. At the end of this story, there are two responses. The townspeople are saying, Jesus, <laughs> you know, they're looking, there's this demoniac, thousands of demons. He's clothed and in his right mind and sitting at the feet of Jesus. And then they look over there and there's bacon floating on the water. And they're thinking to themselves, uh-uh, I don't want this. I do not want this. M my life was just fine. I like the status quo. Don't tell me that you're going to come and, you know, get into my wallet and take my Don't tell me, Jesus, that you're going to come and, and heal people that you know, I don't want to see in my daily life. Don't tell me. Jesus, go home. Go home. I'm going to step out and say this. Some of you have come in and you're realizing just now that you're telling Jesus to go home. Some of you, you know it. You've been called to a deeper relationship in your marriage. You feel like you want to get out. You feel like you can't stay in another minute. You don't really have good, you know, biblical reasons for divorce. It's just, a, it's, a, it's a factor of misery. And you're, you're sick of it. And, and you want to just tell Jesus, go home. Leave me alone. Some of us in our work, if you're honest, you're just cashing a paycheck. There's no sense of contributing to the common good, and there is absolutely no missional purpose where you are befriending people and engaging their lives so that you can show them Jesus. You're just cashing a page. You're telling Jesus, go home. Leave my job alone. Some of us in this room are sleeping around and don't want God messing with our sexuality and using sex for the purpose he intended, and we're telling Jesus, go home. That's one response. The other response is the response of the healing, the healed man who is immensely grateful. The text says, He's clothed and in his right mind, he's at the feet of Jesus. Ask Jesus if he can be with Jesus. In Mark, we begin to understand that the essence of discipleship is to be with Jesus. And he wants to be with Jesus. 
But here's what's interesting. For a first, it's a shocker. And I think because they're in Gentile territory in the gospel to the nations, Jesus doesn't say, as he said to every other person he's healed, now be quiet, because if you start blabbing, I won't be able to do my ministry. He tells this man, I want you to stay here because being with, with me for you means that you stay here and you tell everyone you know what Jesus has done for you. Now, I find that interesting. He doesn't tell this man, now go out and prove to everybody that I'm the son of God. He doesn't, it's, you know, it doesn't depend on what we know about God. He doesn't tell him, I want you to just pray this track with everybody and get him to sign at the end. No, just tell them what I've done for you. That's witnessing. And that's what he tells this man to do. And so I ask you, who comes to your mind right now, in this moment, spirit prompting you, who comes to your mind that this week you could tell them what Jesus has done for you? Do you have a face? Do you have a person? Who needs that? Picture them. Tell them what Jesus has done for you. Do you know what that's called? A power encounter. And you don't even have to wear a tie. Let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, oh, this is the prayer of a beer-drinking monk who also battled the devil, Martin Luther. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. Prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever.